What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Recorded live. Looking for a lift? Experience a seat from the soar with Michael Guido of Metter, Georgia. A man had fallen and the preacher asked, Sam, why didn't you say, get behind me, Satan? I did, he replied, but Satan said to me, since we're both going in the same direction, it makes no difference who leads. There are only two ways, our Lord said. Heaven can be entered only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide enough for all the multitudes who choose its easy way. But the gateway to life is small, and the road is narrow. Only a few ever find it. Our Lord said, I have set before you the way of life and the way of death. It's your move. For your free copy of Dr. Guido's daily devotional, Seeds from the Sore, write The Sore, Metter, Georgia, 304-39. Visit us on the web at thesower.com. At just 21 years old, Roland knew he wanted to own a business. But when he opened a dry goods store in Haverhill, Massachusetts, it failed. Over the next 10 years, Roland opened three more stores and had three more failures. Despite these disappointments, however, he was learning and still trying. Moving to New York, he opened his fifth store, his fifth, and it took. Today, Roland's dry goods store is known as R.H. Macy and Company. This is Howard Butt, Jr. of Laity Lodge, and the lesson here is failure, of course, we can all ace, if we study hard. Mr. Macy reminds us that while stores may close, school stays open in the high calling of our daily work. All right, Jack, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. This is Jam Radio Network. Jesus, oh, he wiped the sins away. 
1291. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, The Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
This is Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1. Now time for our morning prayer. Good morning to you and yours, and thank you for listening. Dear Father God, we come before you this morning saying thank you. Thank you for one more day. Lift up those right now.
God is blessed in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jan Ready Protection at Outlook.com is our email address. We'll be back. Top of the hour for Gospel Special Music on this midweek Wednesday. Good morning. Lent can be a time to take stock of our lives, to come clean about the things that tempt us and the things that scare us. Part of our Lenten discipline can be to acknowledge, in the words of the old prayer, the harm we have done and the good we have left undone. But I also invite us to do another Lenten inventory, an accounting of the angels we have known and loved, and who have loved us, in the wilderness times of our own lives. That's the Reverend Talitha Arnold. I'm Peter Wallace. Join us for some interesting conversation and a powerful message of faith today on Day One. Welcome to Day One. 
One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's mainline Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. our 70th anniversary of faithful weekly broadcasts, beginning in 1945 as the Protestant Hour and continuing as day one since 2002. Now, here's our host, Peter Wallace, to introduce this week's speaker. Thanks, Sherry. We're pleased to have with us again this week the Reverend Talitha Arnold, Senior Minister of the United Church of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Talitha came to the church in 1987 when it was a relatively new church start of the United Church of Christ. An Arizona native, Talitha is a graduate of Pomona College and Yale Divinity School. She was interim associate university chaplain for Yale and served congregations in Connecticut and Arizona before being called to United Church of Santa Fe. Talitha, thanks for being with us again. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. Last week you gave us a sense of the history and ministry of United Church of Santa Fe, but you're also very active personally in the Santa Fe community in a number of ways, the Habitat for Humanity, Cities, Children, and Youth, mission and so forth. Why should a pastor be so involved in her community's life? That's a great question, and it's one I ask myself on a regular basis when I find myself way overextended. <laughs> but I do think it's very important for us to bear witness in the wider world that faith is something that is not just something we do for ourselves, but that moves us, empowers us to do, try to do the things that Jesus did, mm-hmm. whether it's being with the sick feeding the hungry, advocating for the poor and those who are disenfranchised, that we need to be out in the community living the faith as well as in the community uh, being nurtured in the faith. You're also involved in the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, which is an interfaith effort as you're involved in it. Tell us about that. Right. The National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention is a private public partnership that was jointly sponsored initially by the Departments of Defense Health and Human Services, and the Veterans Affairs Department. Mm. I was asked to come on to the executive committee of that organization, and I now co-lead the section that is focused on faith communities. Why is it important? For a variety of reasons, one of them being that oftentimes a pastor, an imam, a rabbi, a priest might be the first person that someone might seek out, either for themselves or for a family member uh, who is going through a difficult time with mental illness. Uh, Secondly, Faith communities, I think, have a very unique role in terms of being communities that help people connect to one another, that offer narratives of hope, Mm. uh, both in the biblical stories and also in the lives of the people that we serve. And thirdly, I think it's very important that the church have a voice in this conversation because oftentimes uh, people assume that the church or the faith community is the last place that they can talk about the troubling things of their lives, including mental illness. The church has a unique role in advocating and in changing the conversation to being able to talk about uh, issues of mental illness and suicide prevention. When we break the silence, it makes a difference. You've written extensively for a variety of platforms, and you're the author of the book Worship for Vital Congregations. What's your goal in that book? My goal was to sort of demythologize how one goes about worship planning. Mm. Um, I use as the metaphor for the book all the way through a 
16-day raft trip that I took down the Grand Canyon about eight years ago mm. and see the rhythm of that trip and the purpose of that trip, to get connected with something bigger than ourselves, to have beauty attacks every mm -hmm. once in a while, um, the rhythm of each day of getting up and going through the work of the day is very much like worship. And what really motivated using that particular image is that I realized in writing the book, as I happened to be thinking back about the Grand Canyon trip, that what truly makes the Grand Canyon grand are all the side canyons mm. that come down to feed that one river. Each one of those canyons has a different feel, a different sound, a different smell. They're very different, but they all come from the same source. They all go mm. to the same source. For me, that's a metaphor for worship. And within the huge umbrella of the Christian church, that we can understand worship as having integrity and power and connecting us to the mystery and power of God, whether it's Quaker worship or a high Roman mass, or somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. The main motivation was to get beyond sort of the, the kind of worship wars or music mm -hmm. wars. You know, you say tomato, I say tomato. You sing uh, a mighty fortress is our God. I sing a Christian praise music. Let's call the whole thing off. What I try to say in the book is let's go back to the sources and see all the multiple ways that this pesky imaginative God calls us to be in relationship. And I understand you're working on another book, A Desert Faith for a Desert Time. What's that about? <laughs> Having grown up in Arizona, for me, the experience of God out in creation, out in the wilderness, was not as it's oftentimes experienced in, especially in the Christian scriptures, where wilderness and desert is seen as that harsh, lonely place mm -hmm. that nobody wants to go to. For me, growing up in Arizona, um, with the parents that I had and... and the time that I grew up there, desert was seen as a place to call home. It wasn't just a place for trial and temptation. Mm -hmm. As now the pastor of a church that finds its home in the high desert of Santa Fe, there's been a motivating factor of how do you help people connect with the landscape around them and to experience God's presence in that landscape rather than moving to a place like Santa Fe or Phoenix or whatever and having to transform it to whatever they left, the green environment of some other place. A Desert Faith for a Desert Time looks at that created landscape all around us. Cactus and lizards and <laughs> saguaros and Palo Verdes and says, what can we learn from that natural world around us about how to live in the desert? Putting down deep roots about blooming where you're planted, about interdependence. Baby sororos need the shade of a Palo Verde tree to make it to their full height. What does the desert have to teach us about living not just in the desert but with the desert? But also looking at desert as a metaphor, and you'll hear some of that in the sermon as well, looking at desert as a metaphor, because one can be in a desert place in a desert time whether you live in Pennsylvania or Atlanta, Georgia, or Santa Fe, New Mexico, going through a divorce, losing a loved one, losing a job, having a loved one deal with addictions or mental illness, all those kinds of things can be desert times. Mm. How do we experience God's presence there? And especially as the world moves environmentally into issues around climate change and the desertification of this world. As a friend of mine says, we better get used to the desert because there's hmm. going to be a lot more of it. Hmm. How do we respond? Do we respond with fear that we're going to 
gather all the water we can in our little place, or do we respond with faith? What does the desert have to teach us? Certainly, what does the faith that we share, especially with our Jewish brothers and sisters, have to teach us? I mean, the Deuteronomy Code, for example, is oftentimes used as a way to castigate gay and lesbian persons. I can tell you there's a lot more in Deuteronomy and the Leviticus Code about taking care of desert lands mm. than there is about sexuality. Mm. Well, this week the church begins the holy season of Lent, and your sermon today is based on the gospel text from Mark chapter 1. Would you read it for us? In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Word of God, Word of Life. This is Mark's rather brief bullet point account of the baptism of Jesus and then his journey in the wilderness that the other Gospels generally expand. What strikes you about this text? It's brevity. <laughs> Mark always gets to the point. Mm -hmm. uh, what also strikes me is that the word that Mark uses about what the Spirit does, it's not just led him out to the wilderness, but drove him out mm -hmm. to the wilderness. Matthew and Luke soften it. They use mm -hmm. a different Greek word. The fact that the wilderness isn't named that within Judaism, within the Hebrew language, because they were a desert-dwelling people, the deserts were named. Sinai, Gad, Dan, Negev. There were also different words for deserts. But by the time you get to New Testament Greek, which is basically an urban language, there's only one word for desert, and it's a place where nobody wants to go, on the other side of the Jordan. So, again, coming from my own desert roots, I find that really interesting in terms of then how does this set us up for understanding not just the geographical deserts, but also the emotional deserts mm. of our lives? And then there's the angels, but mm -hmm. I'll talk more about that later. <laughs> Talitha, your sermon is entitled Angels in the Wilderness. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And if you'd like to listen again to today's program or read or share a transcript of Talitha Arnold's sermon, visit our website at dayone.org. Or for a free printed sermon transcript, call us toll-free at 888-411-DAY1. There were angels in the wilderness. It's important to remember that. After the same spirit that descended on Jesus at his baptism like a dove, then turned into a dive bomber and drove him out to the desert, there were angels in that wilderness. Along with Satan, the wild beasts, and everything else one finds in the desert, heat that burns your skin, thirst that makes your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth, plants crowned with thorns, there were also angels who ministered to him. It's important to remember those angels as we hear again this well-known story for the first Sunday of Lent. They are easy to overlook. In fact, they usually are. Do an Internet search for commentaries and sermons on this passage, and the two themes that surface most often are temptation and repentance. Angels never seem to make the cut. Yet, Mark remembered them. In his lean, spare gospel, the shortest one of all, 
Mark included the angels that Jesus met in his lonely sojourn on the other side of the Jordan. In Luke's version of the same story, Luke leaves them out entirely. In Matthew's Gospel, the angels only show up at the end. But in Mark, they're there the whole time, all 40 days. It's not as if Mark has a thing for angels. He doesn't. Other than this story about Jesus in the wilderness, angels seldom show up in Mark's Gospel. When they do, they're simply part of God's royal court. They're not down on earth helping people. Unlike Luke's Gospel, Mark records no encounter between Mary and the angel Gabriel, nor any angelic appearance to shepherds. Mark leaves out Matthew's angel telling Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, or whispering in his ear to take his family and flee to Egypt. In Mark, there's no angel who strengthens Jesus in Gethsemane, and it's not clear if it's an angel the women meet at the empty tomb, or just a young man dressed in white. So when Mark does include angels helping Jesus in the wilderness, we need to sit up and take note. To do so doesn't disregard the temptations, or even the tempter himself, that Jesus confronted in those 40 days. Nor does it negate Lent's call to repentance, to acknowledge our own temptations, and to wrestle with our own demons. Certainly, we need to be honest about the trials and temptations Jesus faced in the wilderness, and that we face in our own lives. We also need to acknowledge the wild beasts that surrounded him in that desert, just as we need to acknowledge the things that scare the bejesus out of us. Lent is a time to do that. But it's also a time to remember the angels, in his wilderness experience and in ours. To remember, as Mark does, that they were there for him from the very beginning of his 40-day journey. Just as God had been with his ancestors every day of their 40-year desert journey in the wilderness, just as God promises to be with us in the wild, lonely places of our lives. Lent can be a time to take stock of our lives, to come clean about the things that tempt us and the things that scare us. Part of our Lenten discipline can be to acknowledge, in the words of the old prayer, the harm we have done and the good we have left undone. Or in the words of Step 10 of every 12-step program, to do a fearless moral inventory. But I also invite us to do another Lenten inventory, an accounting of the angels we have known and loved and who have loved us in the wilderness times of our own lives. To remember, as Mark remembered, those angels that show up when we're tired, thirsty, and surrounded by wild beasts, just as they did for Jesus. Our wilderness angels probably don't look like we think angels should. No long white robes, no rustling wings, Instead, they may resemble the middle school teacher who believed in us when we couldn't believe in ourselves, or the coach who gave us a chance to play, even if we weren't very good. Maybe one of your angels is a colleague who had your back during a rough time at work, or a friend who listened to your fears and grief after a relationship ended. Sometimes our wilderness angels are the people who accept our apologies when we've hurt them or others, the people who remind us through that acceptance that in the words of William Sloan Coffin, there is more grace in God than sin in us. And sometimes our angels are simply the people who are willing to walk with us into the wilderness and deserts of our own lives. My friend Bill tells this story. The youngest of three children, he was in the sixth grade in 1964 when his father began to manifest signs of what turned out to be a severe mental illness. The day before Bill's 14th birthday, his father was committed to the state hospital. Given the stigma that surrounded mental illness, neither his mother nor his grandparents wanted anyone to know what had happened. 
The family story was simply that his father was away on business. The silence around his father's illness and hospitalization only increased my friend's fears. In addition, because jokes about the mentally ill and places like the state hospital abounded in that time, his friends often made cracks about the loony bin. Bill would join in the laughter. What else could he do? None of his teachers, not even the minister at the church, knew of his father's situation. The one exception was Mr. Moore, his 4-H leader and a trusted family friend. Bill never talked with him directly about his dad, but he knew that Mr. Moore somehow knew what had happened. That made a difference, Bill said. The week before his dad's birthday, Bill's mother told him she wanted him and his sisters to go with her to the state hospital for the day. Bill was terrified. He had no idea what to expect from either his father or the other patients. All he knew were all the stories he'd heard about maniacs and other crazy people. It was the 1960s, after all. He dreaded walking through the hospital gates with his mother and sisters. How could he protect them from what he imagined they would find? He told his mother he didn't want to go. He had other things to do. He didn't want to see his father there. He was ashamed, ashamed of his father, ashamed of himself. But his mother insisted that he go. Bill dug in his heels. So did his mother. But then a few days before the visit, his mother asked Bill if it would help to have someone else come along. Bill immediately thought of Mr. Moore. His 4-H leader agreed to go. My friend said it was like a gift from God. Going through the hospital gates, seeing my father for the first time in weeks, all of it was still scary, Bill said. But having Mr. Moore along made a difference. He knew what to say and do. He simply gave him a big hug and teased him about getting old. He shared stories about all the funny things he and my dad had done together. He got him to ask me and my sisters about our 4-H projects in school. We stayed until visiting hours were over, Bill continued. It was actually hard to leave, which surprised me since I dreaded it so much. But as we walked out, I realized I was no longer afraid. Having Mr. Moore there made it seem normal, like we were all around the kitchen table at home and not in the visitor's room at the state hospital. He made us feel normal, too, that my dad was still my dad, even if he was dealing with a mental illness. Mr. Moore wasn't anyone special, Bill concluded. He wasn't trained in psychiatry or pastoral counseling. He was just a friend who was willing to walk through those hospital gates with us and sit and eat birthday cake and talk with my dad. Lent begins with Jesus' 40-day journey into the wilderness, where, according to Mark, he was tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts. Our Lenten journey also leads us into such wilderness times and places, be they in our own lives or in the world around us. Yes, it can be a hard journey filled with fearsome things, not the least of which are our own failings and the times we've let those fearsome things get the best of us. In our own deserts of Lent, we can feel beset by the wild beasts of despair or regret. But even in such a time, don't forget about the angels in the wilderness. Mark didn't, my friend Bill didn't, and neither should we. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Even in the wilderness, according to Mark, the angels got the last word. May that be true for us in our wilderness journey this Lent, too. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Thank you, God the angels who have been with us in the wilderness times of our own lives. May the remembrance of their presence 
Empower us to be such bearers of your grace and courage in this world, in this season. Amen. This is Sherry Miller. How is the Day One Ministry helping people and why should you support it? Brenda, a listener in Pennsylvania, says, Every Sunday, Day One gives me a message I can carry throughout my week. Mike in Minnesota says, There's not another program like Day One. It allows you to hear the Word of God from so many gifted voices. David in Texas says, Day One is a remarkable aid, not only for a fresh look at a particular Bible text, but as a means to challenge me in my own faith development. And Carolyn in Georgia says, I start my Sunday worship with the Day One program. It prepares me for my church experience, but more than that, it speaks to my heart and gives me the message I need. Please give generously so that Day One can continue to proclaim this much-needed message on the radio and online in the year ahead. Mail your gift to Day One, 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. That's 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Or call us at 1-888-411-DAY1. Or give securely online at dayone.org. On behalf of everyone at Day One, thank you for your support. final reflections on today's message with our host, Peter Wallace. Talitha, you explained that Mark includes this moving image of angels ministering to Jesus in the wilderness, a detail minimized or ignored in the other Gospels' accounts of this event, and it's unusual because Mark rarely mentions angels elsewhere in his Gospel. Lent is not typically a time we meditate on the work of angels, so what should we take with us from this angelic image for the season ahead, particularly as we face our own wilderness wanderings? Great question. For me, to be aware of the angels in the wilderness is a metaphor of why we take the whole Lent journey to begin mm. with. Why would anybody in their right mind want to go into a wilderness time? Why would anyone in their right mind want to observe Lent with its minor key music, with its very hard story? And as Frederick Buechner says, we know it, it doesn't end well. <laughs> but for me, the, the fact that Mark talks about the angels in the wilderness is a reminder that on the hard journey of Lent, whether it's the hard journey of Jesus and his passion that leads to the cross, or the hard journey of our own lives, the self-reflection, the looking at the world around us, that somehow God is still present there. And that if God could somehow be present in that last week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, with the betrayal, the denial, the arrest, and finally the crucifixion itself, then God has been there and continues to be there in the wild and lonely places of our own time. And that maybe what enabled and empowered Jesus 
to take that journey was the remembrance that that same voice, that same presence that baptized him and blessed him and said, you are beloved, still whispered to him through the voices of those angels, you are beloved in that very wild and lonely place across the Jordan. If that can be true for him, then perhaps it can be true for us. And you encouraged us to consider during Lent the angels we have known and loved and who have loved us in the wilderness times of our own lives, just as Mr. Moore did with Bill and your story. Whether those angels are still with us or not, how might we honor them in this season? I think by telling their stories, mm. sharing their stories, that when we talk with people about our faith, be it in an adult study program or prayer group or just people with whom we work, to not in a Pollyannish kind of way, but to tell the full story and to be aware of the fact that somehow God was present there even when we did not know it. I mean, think all the way back to the Jacob story and the ladder of angels in his wilderness time. He's on the run from his brother. He's out in the wilderness by himself with only a stone for a pillow. Yet in the middle of the night, he sees this incredible vision of angels going up and down the ladder. He wakes up and he says, Surely God was in this place, even if I did not know it. Mm. For me, Lenten discipline is becoming aware of where those angels are and knowing it. Talitha, what's one thing from your sermon that you hope stays with our listeners in the week ahead? I hope that whatever wilderness or desert time they may be experiencing right now in their lives, that in looking back both at the biblical story and also at the story of their own lives, they can remember how it has been that God has been present with them, ministering to them as those angels ministered to Jesus in that desert place, and that the remembrance of things past, of angels past, if you will, will give them the courage and the hope and the strength they need to navigate the wild and lonely places of their lives and of this world. Talitha Arnold, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on Day One and forever. Jack, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. This is Jam Radio Network. This is Jam Radio Network.
on Jam Radio 2.1.
This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Can't seem to find a reason to believe that I can break 
chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 tell us, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. There's no way we can defeat our enemy as long as we use his weapons against our brothers and sisters in Christ. As Paul warned us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Bitterness, wrath, anger, malice, these things are not of God. The weapons he has given us to defeat these things include kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Paul tells us in Romans, chapter 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those commands are intended for us today, every bit as much as they were intended for the Christians in Rome. Jesus has given you the spirit of peace, love, and a sound mind. It is in your power to live peaceably. Determine today to overcome the weapons of wrath with weapons of mercy. How should a church or ministry respond when a former member demands that his offerings be returned? Legal insight from your church. Here's a word from attorney David Gibbs, Jr., a pastor contacted the Christian Law Association because a disgruntled former member was demanding that his tithes and offerings be returned to him. The pastor did not know what was legally required of him or the church. One of our attorneys who specializes in tax and finance explained to the pastor the definition of a gift. According to the Internal Revenue Service, a charitable contribution or gift is a voluntary transfer of money or property without any consideration or compensation. Once the gift is voluntarily given and received, the giver no longer has any legal right to recover the contributions. The attorney advised the pastor that he has no legal liability to return any of the money to this disgruntled member. Maybe you're facing a legal issue similar to today's report on the legal alert. And maybe you wish you had a legal team to assist you. The Christian Law Association is standing by with free legal support. Visit ChristianLaw.org to link up with us. That's ChristianLaw.org. At just 21 years old, Roland knew he wanted to own a business. But when he opened a dry goods store in Haverhill, Massachusetts, it failed. Over the next 10 years, Roland opened three more stores and had three more failures. Despite these disappointments, however, he was learning and still trying. Moving to New York, he opened his fifth store, his fifth, and it took. Today, Roland's dry goods store is known as R.H. Macy & Company. This is Howard Butt, Jr. of Laity Lodge. 
And the lesson here is failure, of course we can all ace, if we study hard. Mr. Macy reminds us that while stores may close, school stays open in the high calling of our daily work. All right, Jack, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. This is Jam Radio Network. This is Jam Radio Network. This is Jam Radio Point One. This is Quiet Storm Inspirations. You are listening to the Lighthouse Hour with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. You are listening to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1. This is Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1. You are listening to Quiet Storm Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
planning to visit, first of all, Cuba. Then I am traveling to Spain and other capitals in Europe, mostly to talk and to update on the situation on Haiti. I think that the international community, in particular those countries I am going to visit, they have been extremely generous with the efforts we are conducting in Haiti, and that's the reason why I think it's important at this stage to meet with them, to update what the situation, and also to inform them about the challenges we are facing in Haiti. Speaking about challenges, the international community has seen itself facing emergencies like the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. To what extent has this affected the financing and resources to fight cholera in Haiti? Well, I think that the Ebola epidemic in West Africa has also been a priority for the United Nations and the whole international community. There is no doubt that in the last years in particular, the attention of the international community has been focusing in, on the how to control and to eliminate uh, Ebola. But I think at the same time, the current outbreak in Haiti has been somehow overshadowed by other crises around the world. And what we would like to do is to remind the international community how important it is to keep our efforts going, and more important, at this stage, because we are facing a surge of cases in the last uh, months in Haiti, also to remind them that uh, even if it, Ebola is important, this other uh, outbreak we have, another epidemic we have in, uh, in, in the Western Hemisphere, which is uh, Haiti, deserve also the same attention by the international community. How would you describe the current status of the uh, epidemic in the country? Can we speak about any progress? Of course. I think that progress has been made. Last year, we had 28,000 new cases of cholera. If we compare this with previous year, 2000. And 15 and 12, in those years we had over 60,000 cases per year. Even the previous year we had over 100,000 new cases, of course. So progress has been made. But we need to understand that uh, in Haiti, the water and sanitation infrastructure, even the health uh, infrastructure, is very weak. So it will take years to have uh, proper systems in place, in particular water and sanitation. Haiti is perhaps uh, the country with the lowest coverage of uh, water and sanitation in the whole Latin American region. So that's the reason why the government has uh, launched this national plan for the elimination of uh, cholera in Haiti. And progress has been made. There is no doubt that progress has been made. But uh, at the same time, we need also to, to keep in mind that uh, this epidemic is affecting the poorest uh, section of the society, uh, particularly when we have the rainy season, we have a surge in new cases, of course. But that explains why we have, uh, in, in particular during this period, a surge number of cases. But we also need to be prepared. So that's the reason why we have this two-track approach. While we deal with the emergency, while we are taking care of those affected, at the same time, we have to make the investments in water, sanitation, health, because this is what history tells us, has taught us. If we have those systems in place, then even if we have bacteria, we are not going to have an epidemic. Does the current political instability in Haiti, uh, does it have any impact on the fight against cholera? I think so, and I think that uh, we hope that this political crisis will be solved. It doesn't help uh, to have uh, a political crisis in the midst of all these, uh, uh, I would call it, uh, humanitarian challenges. There is uh, also 
the need to, to have well-functioned uh, government uh, agencies and institutions, and uh, the fact that uh, there is now a process and a kind of stalemate in terms of uh, the elections and Congress, it doesn't help. But uh, we are confident that uh, the government of uh, Haiti and the people of Haiti will find a solution because uh, certainly it's, uh, it's important to have uh, a government that works and the uh, national community can work with.
Would you join with me, please, in prayer? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, thank you that you loved me enough that you became a man and died on a cross, paid the price for all the wrong things that I have done. I'm sorry for my sin. It's my sin that puts you on that cross. And I'm sorry. I don't want to live in rebellion to you anymore. I ask you to forgive me. And tonight I open my heart and I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead. From the death of sin, you are giving me a new life. The life of Jesus Christ. Oh God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart, And according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Oh, let me ask you, friends, in closing tonight, have you done this? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to that obedience of faith? Have you come to that place of true repentance and true faith? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting alone tonight in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For there is no other way. There is no other message. For there is no other way. There is no other message. Oh, come to him. Come to the Savior tonight. Come to him just as you are. Come to him in your sin. Come to him in all your needs. Cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself truly to him. And you too will enter into that joy of sins forgiven, peace with God, and eternal, abundant life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How can I say thanks? For the things you have done for me, things so undeserved. Yeah. You gave your very life for me. The voices of a million. Good night.
for a lift? Experience a seed from the sore with Michael Guido of Metter, Georgia. A man had fallen, and the preacher asked, Sam, why didn't you say, get behind me, Satan? I did, he replied, but Satan said to me, since we're both going in the same direction, it makes no difference who leads. There are only two ways, our Lord said. Heaven can be entered only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide enough for all the multitudes who choose its easy way. But the gateway to life is small, and the road is narrow. Only a few ever find it. Our Lord said, I have set before you the way of life and the way of death. It's your move. For your free copy of Dr. Guido's daily devotional, Seeds from the Soar, write The Soar, Metter, Georgia, 30439. Visit us on the web at thesower.com. Hi, Jack, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. This is Jam Radio Network. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.